Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biosphere, where Caltech graduate students discuss our favorite biology and some of our experiences in lab. This is Julian, your principal host for the day. Aditi. I'm Lev. Hi, everyone. I'm John. Today's topic is fitting in. So I'll have everyone do their hot takes on fitting in from one to five. I give a, a two and a half, maybe even two. And that's because if I fit in, I want it to be on my terms, <laughs> which, which is maybe, you know, not so much fitting in. But like, I know that, you know, coming here, for instance, for graduate school, it was my choice and I feel like I fit in well. But in high school, I didn't want to fit in at all because I felt like it wasn't on my terms. So, yeah, I think it really depends on the context for me. All right. Aditi? I give it a solid three because I think that to some extent, if you're going to have, you know, any kind of social cohesion, everyone's got to try to make a small effort to play by somewhat similar rules. At the same time, you shouldn't compromise who you are in your principles. Okay. John? Yeah, I would say three as well. And I feel like a lot of any person's personal development is this constant tension between those two things that DT just said. All of us have this desire to fit in and feel accepted and, and cared for by the people around us. But at the same time, we don't want to lose our individuality in that process. So, okay. It's, yeah. it's okay. good, but difficult. <laughs> that seems fair. Um, I don't know. I think about it mostly positively. The idea of fitting in in a group that you choose finding your people and then fitting in kind of feels really good. When I was Googling uh, this term a little bit, there were a lot of articles about fitting in versus belonging. And they were drawing a distinction um, between them saying that belonging is much better. But I mean, I think there's something to be said for just gelling well, What about the, the one people. to five scale, Julian? I said, yeah. did I not give it? No. Oh, I thought it. You said it was positive. It's very important, yeah. Julian. Oh, oh yeah, it is positive. Okay, I was thinking four and I, I thought I had said it because I was thinking it so much. <laughs> Today we're talking about fitting in in the context of culture and conformity in non-human animals. Hmm. So I'll just kind of give the punchline right up front and then we'll go through some other examples. It's been shown that insects, even insects, fruit flies that you see buzzing around your bananas and strawberries have some form of cultural transmission and local uh, trends in their behaviors and preferences. Hmm. Wow. So I'm, I think we should start off with some sort of descending in terms of complication of the brain of organisms. So some of the first cases where culture has been shown in animals outside of humans is in macaques in Japan. There's these primatologists in Japan who started watching troops of macaques over extended periods of time. And they noticed that certain strange behaviors would propagate rapidly throughout these troops. So for example, in one case, there was one individual they saw taking these yams that they eat and cleaning them in water. So they would rinse them off, get all any sand off of it, and presumably make it more palatable. And then in a very short period of time, basically all of the macaques were doing this. Hmm. They were all cleaning their, their yams off. While other neighboring troops did not. Yeah, so it's this local phenomenon where ones that are in contact with each other have shared behaviors. Mm -hmm. They observe the same troop eating the yams without washing them prior to this, fir this first yes, individual? Yes, yeah, okay. yeah. So they, they didn't used to wash them. They saw one one doing it, mm. and then they all started doing it. Hmm. It could, could make sense that in, in cases of like acquiring food, this would make sense for a population you'd want to be able to spread, you know, getting better food. But they also have seen 
um, macaques playing with stones. So they saw one that was kind of just like banging them around and doing who knows what with them. And then they went back maybe like 10 years later and they noticed that a lot of these macaques were doing the same thing where they were just kind of taking some stones and just messing around with them, not doing anything related to eating or otherwise. They were really just playing with them, sometimes for like 20 minutes on end. They would just amuse themselves with these random stones. Mm. So strange behaviors that are propagating, you know, from one kind of individual that has an innovation and then decides to share it. So this is in primates. These are pretty developed brains. I think it makes sense that they might be able to transmit on mm -hmm. from generation to generation. But it's also been shown in some other animals. So one prominent example is in birds. So one of the first studies in birds showing quantitatively and in the wild that they can transmit information to each other was published in 2015. So pretty recently, what they did is they found subpopulations of these songbirds. The great tit is what it's called. And it's kind of a funny name, but I had to share it. Um, so they would take, they'd find subpopulations that are around size 100 that are somewhat isolated from others in the area. And they would take two birds out and show it how to get mealworms out of a box. They had to slide a lever on the box in order to, to get at this food resource. So they would train it for a few days and then they would release it into the population and see how, how long it took for the rest of the population to start breaking into these boxes mm -hmm. that, they were, that they were leaving. And they also did a control where they captured the birds, but then didn't teach it and then released them again. And what they found is that the populations where they released these two birds that had been trained much, much more rapidly in the course of a few days got to the point where 75% of the birds could solve the puzzle. Nice. And break so, it. That's interesting. So I, I have a few questions thinking about birds and you, you said that we're going to go towards in, insects. I know that in the case of bird song with some birds like zebra finches, you have a parental teaching of the song to, to the child bird. And that if you isolate the child from the other songbirds, they're not going to learn to sing and they're not going to learn this characteristic song that they sing for the rest of their life. And then I know that, for example, with bees, there are the dances that teach the other bees where the flowers are and mm -hmm. where, where they can go. Uh, and to me, that seems similar to what you were just describing with these uh, great tits. But to me, it's not quite the same thing as culture in that it's teaching tool use, but it, se it seems different from like the sort of play that you were describing with the macaques. Mm -hmm. like, in my mind, those things yeah, are Yeah, so separate. I think there's, there's another aspect to this study which I think adds to the idea of culture. And it's that in some of the experimental trials, they had two different boxes that had a similar but different solution. Mm -hmm. And if they taught the birds the one solution and then released them, they would continue to prefer that solution even after they had solved the other box. I see. And their food rewards in the boxes were the same, the mm -hmm. same quantity. So that there was no reason for a preference between them after they had found a solution, mm -hmm. but they continued to show a preference for the box so that they were taught. A, that was oh, kind of more popular solution. Yeah, so that it's was, kind of like having a tradition at yeah. that point. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah. So just based on the bias of what other individuals are doing, they show a preference. Uh -huh. Wow. Oh, that actually gave me the shivers. <laughs> <laughs> there are some slightly more anecdotal parts here where they analyzed individual birds. And they, they show things like that. If one bird learned the other solution first, but then switched over to the solution that had been taught and so was more popular, mm -hmm. they wouldn't switch back. 
mm. to the solution that they had sort of innovated themselves. Okay, so just wow. to just to do a little recap to get things straight in my mind, we've so we've seen macaques that can innovate either a new kind of tool or new approach to getting food and communicate that information. We've also seen them inventing a new game that spreads over time. Then with these birds, we've seen that we can both teach them actually just like humans can teach them how to solve a puzzle. Then those birds can communicate that to their uh, community. Mm -hmm. And then that tradition is established such that even if they come up with new solutions to new puzzles that are no better or worse, they'll continue doing the first thing that they learned. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so the last aspect I think that's that's important for when we're going to talk about the insect uh, paper. This trend that they saw in the birds' preference for a solution was also persistent over time. So if you looked the next year, even though there's a really high turnover in the birds of, in a population, somewhere around 40% survive from year to year of this particular species of bird, if you put the box back out from a year before, then the birds that already knew the solution will still remember it. And the rate at which the population kind of goes to fixation for everyone knowing how to solve the puzzle is faster than it was in the initial experiment mm. where you trained the two birds mm. and then released them. So for some of the curves, it's it's a similar rate where they learn it fast, but similar to like the two bird release. And in some of the populations, they learned it much, even much faster than they had the first time around. And so you have to remember that in the second case, a year later, they're not retraining any birds. Mm -hmm. They're just relying on the birds that survived from the previous year, remembering how to solve the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And then again, kind of modeling the behavior and it spreads again through the population. So just so that I have a better conception of it, how do these birds compare just in size and like to crows and magpies, to parrots? They're much smaller from what I understand. They're yeah. sort of I think songbird size. Oh, like, okay. Kind of like finches? Yeah, I think so. Well, according to the Royal Society of Protection of Birds, the great tit is about 14 centimeters long and has a wingspan of about 24 centimeters. Mm -hmm. They're not huge. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so pretty small. Hmm. So these are in, in the group of birds that we typically think of as these are particularly smart birds. Yeah, I, I would say because people usually think of, yeah, crows, ravens, parrots yeah. as being really smart. I mean, I think there has also been evidence in parrots for cultural transmission, but this, I think, is sort of a nice quantitative study. Are these birds particularly social? I guess I don't really know that much about their ethology. I They did some social network analysis in here. The social network is kind of predictive of how fast another bird acquires the skill. Mm -hmm. It's like, basically, you have to watch um, the, a first bird get the answer before you learn it. Except, I mean, they do have innovations, but it takes longer right. than if they pick it up from another one. And the interesting thing, too, is that they're able to, to learn these things from each other. And they're not necessarily very closely related to each other either. Yeah. Right. So they're like getting benefits from from watching non-relatives. Yeah. Which is wow. very clear. Yeah. To me, I mean, this is entirely tangential at this point, but the fact that we and other animals can watch other individuals do something and learn it it just never ceases to amaze me like you know i've never played baseball really but you know i could watch someone in a school in my schoolyard playing it and then you know pick up a bat and do a pretty good approximation and, and it's it's just amazing to me how 
I don't know. The fact that we can see someone, you know, 10 feet away from one angle and figure out the whole motion. Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah. 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 And I mean, when you think about kind of evolutionary arguments on the human side, you know, we're social living groups, right? Uh, with overlapping generations where you can have sort of wise older individuals who could teach useful skills and mm -hmm. so on. Um, but it gets, I think, more interesting um, from an evolutionary perspective when you continue to go into kind of less and less socially complicated organisms and they continue to show similar abilities, even with much yeah. smaller brains. Yeah. So I think it's time to move on now to the fruit flies that also have culture. So I'm gonna start off with kind of the nitty gritty technical details of how they define culture in this paper. Because mm -hmm. I think it's really important to have a groundwork in order to decide if flies have culture. So there are five things that need to be present for culture. The first is phenotypic variation inherited through social learning. You learn stuff by looking. Number two is social learning must occur across age classes. You learn it from your elders. Three is the social learning is maintained over long periods to be copied. You yourself don't forget it. Four is produces trait-based copying. The stuff that you learn by looking, if you learn it for one individual behavior, you can generalize it. And five is has repair and reinforcement mechanisms. The whole culture reinforces this behavior. Okay. So now let's go through it with the flies. How do, yes. how do they show these things in flies? They took male and female flies. The males, they colored either with a green or a pink dot. So they added some kind of paint onto the animal and then allowed one female to watch as a different female chose whether to mate with the red or pink labeled fly. Picture five flies, two of them are mating one female chose the green male, two observing females, and one rejected pink male. <laughs> Which, I mean, I am certainly uh, projecting, but that male looks sad. <laughs> so in the first uh, variant of this experiment, basically they just ran exactly as I said, one female observed, and then they took the female that had observed the other choice of a different female, and they put her with a uh, pink and a green labeled male. And more often than you would expect, she chose the same color as the female that she had observed. So like if the female she observed had chosen a green male, then she would preferentially choose a green male. Did they show one. that for the original choice, there was no bias? Yeah, I was about to ask the same. Yes, there doesn't seem to be a bias for the pink or the green mm -hmm. inherent in the, in the flies. Mm -hmm. and. The, th the thing is with this trend too is though is that it holds for whether the, the female who was observing saw the first female mate with a green or with a pink. Mm -hmm. So if the first female mate with a pink, then she'd preferentially mate with a pink mm -hmm. and then a green with a green. Okay. So this is kind of criterion one. Mm -hmm. So there's a phenotype, uh, the green or mm -hmm. pink. And after socially observing some trait, which is mate choice, um, the second female biases her own choice based on this social learning. And it's also criterion number four, right? The stuff that you learn by looking is something that's trait-based, and it's based on the trait of the pink or the green dot that so, the choice is made. Um, it hasn't quite been distinguished yet because 
It's unclear at this point whether the female thinks that she's mating with the same male as mm. the other female oh, listeners. Yeah. Right. So it's not based on a trait yet because you have to first show that it it's kind of identity. generalized. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So for the second category, which is it must occur across age classes, they basically just did exactly the same experiment. And the one who was modeling the behavior was an older fly, 11 days older than the first one. And then when they ran the same experiment, it showed exactly the same trend. So whether the um, female that the that one was observing was old or young, it didn't seem to matter. They would mm -hmm. still okay. socially learn this, this trait. Um, as for the third one, it's this idea of memory. So they did a slightly different experiment. They allowed one female to observe several matings with some break in between, because this seems to be important for long-term memory formation. And then they gave her uh, the choice between a green or a pink one uh, a day later, and still showed the strong preference, just like she did if she had, was given the trial right after first observing. Right, and for a free fly, one day later is a substantial chunk of their lifetime. Yes, that, that's a long time, yep. They did some other experimental manipulations that limit the ability of memory formation, and it reduced the copying a day later. So they are forming memories that are lasting in their brain about this preference. The behavior lasts through time. So this is, this is number three. Four is produces trait-based copying. So for number four, they have previously shown that there's a certain mutant of fruit flies that have curly wings and white eyes and they've shown that fruit flies can tell apart the one that's curly winged and wide eyed from a normal wild type. Mm -hmm. So they first ran the experiment either with one of these curly winged white flies. So the female was observing another female choosing to mate with a green or a pink marked wide eyed curly winged male. And then in the next step, they gave a green or a pink marked wild type. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they still showed the preference based on the color. Mm -hmm. So at this point, the fly knows that it's not the same individual that the other female was mating with. Mm -hmm. It's a different individual, but she's still choosing based on this trait, which is the color, mm -hmm. um, color mark. And this manipulation is kind of arbitrary in a sense. Mm -hmm. So I think it supports the idea that they learn traits socially, even if it's not necessarily correlated with any kind of fitness, fitness. benefit mm -hmm. yeah. in the males. Yeah, well, I know that and this is like insider knowledge, but curly winged flies actually are a bit less fit. They they don't survive quite as well. And so it would be interesting to see if you can basically get a fly population to preferentially mate with less fit males through the social learning. Mm -hmm. Like put yeah. a green curly winged fly and a pink wild, like not curly winged fly together and see yeah. which one the female chooses. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That I, cool. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. The last criterion is that there needs to be a repair and reinforcement mechanism for uh, this behavior. They did a new experiment in what they called the hexagon. So, <laughs> so they took a female and put her in the middle of a chamber where she could observe six matings happening at once <laughs> around the periphery. So she was just surrounded by it. And uh, so they basically ran in parallel six of these experiments with, where the female, a different female would choose between green or the pink. And then they measured based on how many of the matings happened 
um, of the six with either green mm -hmm. or pink and mm -hmm. some um, what the preference was of the female observer. Mm -hmm. And so the crazy thing here is that as soon as there's a bias towards one or the other, the female shows the same preference for that color as she would for a larger bias. So like if you yeah. have six greens that she's observed, mm -hmm. or if she has four out of the six that mm -hmm. were green preference, then she biases as much towards the green in that case as she would if all of them were green. Mm -hmm. Oh wow. But if it's half and half. If it's half and half, her, there's no random. preference. It's hmm. random, yeah. Huh. If you have four pink, mm -hmm. then she biases towards the pink just as strongly as if there were six pink. Mm -hmm. Wow. So the idea here is that this is a, a reinforcement mechanism because the bias is so strong. If she sees this you know, more often mm -hmm. than chance, then it is reinforced because the bias is so strong. Mm -hmm. It's like the rate she picks is higher than the preference rate that she sees, um, which is a reinforcement mechanism and can lead to fixation. So, I mean, the natural uh, question then, it meets all these criteria, and does this pop propagate through a population and maintain through time, right? Yeah. So just say, if you show these preferences, well, just if you chain them together and let one female who learned from another one continue to demonstrate, how long will this bias persist in a population? Mm -hmm. And the answer is a little bit unsatisfying from this paper, though they show that there was an increase in how long it maintains as compared to chance, but they were doing so few individuals by random chance, the trait can go away, it can drift out. But they did some modeling work and they extrapolated it up. And if you have even like a hundred individuals that you show the bias, then the trait will persist for potentially thousands of years. Wow. It's like thousands of fly generations. And in this case, so this this experiment where it died out within whatever number of generations, just a few. Yeah. How many individuals were showing? It was just six. Just that's six. what okay. they can start that was with. What yeah. It was. Okay. Do you think that it would be sufficient to put the fly in the hexagon and show her videos of other flies mating? Does does she need to see actual real flies? I don't know for sure. I mean, my gut feeling on this is that videos might work. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's a lot of people who present visual stimuli to flies. For example, there's there's one paper where they put the fly in kind of a VR apparatus and it's able to avoid objects. So I think perhaps that you could do it with a video. Okay. Mm -hmm. the, the idea of the fly porn <laughs> culture is just latched in my mind. Now. The hexagon is quite an apparatus. <laughs> Does, the, does the email that's in the hexagon have to like spin around to see all of the options? I don't know. The... I'm, I I didn't see any. How do you separate what they were everybody? Doing. Was it like is it like a hexagon with like small chambers at the end? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, there's so it's like chambers. she's separated from them by yeah. yeah so glass. she's in the middle, and then there's a pane of glass, and uh, then yeah. each chamber is happening wow. separately. Incredible. Yeah. Um, How do they get all the chambers to mate at once? I don't know. I mean, maybe they don't have to meet at once. Yeah, I don't know how long exactly they wait um, in the chamber. This raises interesting questions for, for populations in nature because if there is a slight bias towards even a neutral trait, that could lead to this runaway effect where that trait ends up at fixation in the population just because of social learning, where it's modeled mm -hmm. that you should preferentially mate this way, and so then it just lasts on that yeah. way. But it can also affect things that do relate to fitness for the organism. If there is a slight 
fitness benefit that's based on a visual, right? And the fly is able to tell apart visually different males and then just copy what others are doing. It can get the fitness benefit of mating with the better male based mm. on um, a visual. So it, it makes sense to me that this would exist in flies because the, it offers them another way of, of choosing the better mate partner. So my conclusion for this, I think is, I think that there's a strong argument to be made that this is some kind of, some kind of culture in fruit flies. You can have a kind of an arbitrary choice that's reinforced through others watching others make the choice, mm -hmm. right? We over and over again kind of underestimate, I think, what these little animals can do and how complicated their their brains are, and it's just fascinating to dig into. You know, yeah. what a fly is thinking, you know, <laughs> whatever that means. Oh, there was actually one other anecdote I wanted to share about meerkats. Meerkats. So they also have social learning. And what I really loved about it is that it's them sleeping in. So there's this experiment. <laughs> Over 11 years, some groups consistently emerged later from their sleeping burrows in the morning than others. <laughs> Despite complete turnovers in group membership and influx of immigrants. So, <laughs> so some meerkats like to sleep in and that's socially transmitted. <laughs> Preparing for the tough day of work ahead. Yeah. yeah. All right, so, uh, so here at Caltech, the way that the biology department works is that we rotate in a few different professors' labs, which means that we go and spend about 10 weeks in the lab and work on a project and figure out if we like the environment, how well we fit in, whether we kind of belong there and like the work and the, and the professor. Um, so I, I just wanted to share kind of one of the ways that I used to decide which lab I was in. And it was uh, the first week in my rotation, uh, went out collecting for beetles and ants and it was just really fun to, you know, we just took lift up to one of the hiking trails around Caltech and we just go out and look for leaf litter and look for ants and start getting attacked viciously. And in one, one part, we uh, started reaching into this, this ant colony and they just crawl all over your, your, your body. And <laughs> it was just this sense of kind of collegiality with the professor and there was uh, another grad student along on that trip. I like the culture and the idea that you just go out and collect insects as part of your job, you know, and all the little discussions you have about, oh, what is this? You know, what is this? Why are they doing it? The ants doing this? Where are we going to find these beetles? And when I caught the first beetle, that was a big moment. There's something real sense of pride when you find your first important beetle that could be used <laughs> for some experiment later on, perhaps. Um, so that was that was one way that I, I think I kind of landed in the lab I'm in. It was just a sense of fun and um, and belonging i guess in that culture and your so. lab culture doesn't end there you guys go get mediterranean chicken every time after <laughs> that, collecting that is true yeah we have all these traditions that <laughs> will persist through time yeah. uh john how did how did you go about picking your final lab yeah it was a tough choice i i rotated in three very different labs but i think that ultimately what I was looking for while doing the rotations, like all of the labs that I rotated in were really great. Um, I formed connections between the grad students and the professors in each of the labs, and I felt like I could be happy in all of them. But I think what I was really searching for while doing these different projects and with different professors was trying to get a sense of what I really wanted to spend my time doing, because I wasn't totally sure exactly what kind of direction I wanted to take my interests with grad school. What I settled upon was what, what really 
won me over was uh, in the lab that I ended up joining, the professor, my professor now, sat down with me once a week, every week, reading literature that she had published in her lab so that I could get a really good feel for the type of work that had been done in the lab, as well as the type of work that's currently going on in the lab that I was actually doing. Mm-hmm. And I realized while reading that work that my true interests lie in physiology and like understanding how organisms function, how they stay alive, how they react and respond to differences in their environment. And her lab just has a like a long track record of doing that. So it just felt like a good fit. And of course, there's also like the personal aspect. But um, but like I said, I felt that I fit in personally with all the professors that I rotated with. So the, the thing that really won me over is my own internal realization of like what I wanted to spend my time in grad school doing. But it sounds too like that that kind of culture um, that she was fostering of just sitting down, right, and going through papers and really diving deep with students. That's very mm-hmm. much a cultural thing too that I think sounds like influenced. It did. Why you love the work so much now. Yeah. Potentially. It, it right? probably I mean, did. Yeah. Yeah. For me, there were several things. I, I think that I spent a lot of time thinking about the exact role that I would have in the lab. And so I rotated in the same lab as you are in now, Julian, and I ended up joining the lab that John is in now. <laughs> um, and I also loved both of them very much. I think for me, one of the things that it came down to is one, like once I left, what sort of training would I have gotten? And in the Julian's lab, it would be, you know, an evolutionary biologist like, uh, and with the uh, entomological bend. In John's lab, it would be like a bacterial physiologist or even bacterial ecologist or something mm-hmm. along those lines. But also I was thinking about how, how would I be interacting with other people in the lab and with the project and with the professor. And I felt like in your lab, Julian, I would actually be more in a position of kind of like a postdoc than a graduate mm-hmm. student if I were to join because I had this interest in the microbial world. And even as a first year graduate student, I knew more about it than the professor and then the other people in the lab. And I didn't feel comfortable with that. I didn't feel like I would move in the direction that I wanted to with the kind of the guidance that, that I sure. that I would want. In the lab where I did join, I felt like I would be in a position of a trainee to a certain extent that that I would be surrounded by people who were more experienced in what I was interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I wanted to put myself in a culture where I could learn from elders. Hey, uh, <laughs> like, like the but, but not mating preference necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe I don't know. <laughs> what about you, Aditi? Well, I think it's an especially important point that's been said both implicitly and explicitly, which is that the culture of the lab is to a large extent set by the professor, obviously. It's top down. And so for me, and I think for anybody trying to choose a lab who's in the position we were in a year ago, the most important thing to to examine was whether or not that professor, that PI was going to be someone we could work with for the next four or five, six years, hopefully like four um, <laughs> but, but I think I also got really lucky in that 
all three labs I rotated in had excellent professors, excellent PIs. Mm -hmm. The people in the lab, was, they were highly cohesive groups. And so none of that ended up even factoring in just to a large extent because I liked everybody so much. So I think what it came down to, to me, for me was the work and what I really wanted to do. And a, when I was little, I thought I wanted to be marine biologist. And I didn't end up going into that because I thought, you know, microbiology is a little more broadly applicable. I could do marine stuff later if I wanted to, but it would be a good place to start as an undergrad and then I could branch out. But I think I never actually thought I'd get the chance at doing marine work. And then I totally had the chance. Uh -huh. So I jumped at it. Um, and that's honestly, honestly, I think how, how I chose the lab, but in terms of of lab culture, I, I think the, what made my life so difficult was that in every single lab, there was a, what made my life so difficult in choosing, I should say, is that in every single lab, there was this, this feeling that we were all in it together. We were all going to collaborate. We were all going to help each other out. Because there's a stereotype in some labs, right? And in some science labs that we're all trying to compete for papers and undercut each other. And there's rumors flying about certain departments and and how somebody like ruined someone else's experiment that has for me and for the people that I've interacted with here no one's had that experience here so I I felt very fortunate in in that in, in choosing labs where the culture was one of such strong collaboration and hopefully when I become like a senior grad student and have like actual experience under my belt and people are coming to me with questions instead of me going to everybody else I help carry that tradition forward of, of fostering collaboration and, and helping out. Yeah. Hmm. One thing that I've thought about in the past is what exactly changes with differing sizes of labs. Mm -hmm. In my undergrad at UChicago, by the time that I left that lab, it was just a postdoc, the professor, and me, wow. which is very small. Uh, especially by the standards here, where I think the average lab is like 12 people, probably. At UChicago, I felt like I was just really close friends with the professor and the postdoc. And I, I, can't, I can't say that there was a lab culture. I, it feels like there were too few people. There was a lab relationship that mm. was mm -hmm. very friendly and, uh, and very positive. But, I mean, I have no idea what it is now that there are a couple new people who I've never met before. Like, I, I don't know how really stable it is, though I think that being so small, it's probably just kind of stabilized by the professor and what, what, and what he brings. But in the lab where uh, John and I are now, it's interesting because, you know, in the past five years, practically the whole lab has turned over for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, and and still, it seems like the culture is more or less the same. Like so, somehow it's been maintained. And it, it is a scary idea to me that a new person will come who will somehow drastically unbalance things. I really hope that doesn't happen. But I, but I do wonder how I it do, carries through. I feel yeah. to like to some extent, like attracts like. So yeah. you guys, I rotated in the same lab and also really liked it. There was a discussion of me joining that lab too, but I think it's a, sort of a like attract like thing where you guys went to that lab and said, you guys are just like me in terms of how you like to work mm -hmm. and collaborate. Like, yeah, you're definitely there to learn new skills, 
but the way you guys work, your work ethic, your style, it fit. And so I think once you set up a certain culture, it can sort of like, it's almost self-propagating because you tend to attract people of the same mindset. The other thing too, is that if somebody is probably going to like massively disrupt lab culture, that's where the PI can be like, eh, I don't think this is a good fit. Mm-hmm. And, and see, this is why, this is that. why I gave a four to fitting in, I think, mm-hmm. because there's something to be said for sort of self-selecting mm-hmm. where you are such that you're comfortable and belong. I mean, at the same time, last time we talked about new beginnings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's also something to be said for stretching yourself and getting new experiences. But I do think fit in, you know, your chosen field, your chosen lab is is all very important. Yeah, I I definitely would argue against trying to superimpose on your intuition for where you fit in some ideal that you got from an external source for what you should be doing. Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. if you feel like you want to be a teacher and that you don't want to do research, then you're going to be unhappy uh, forcing yourself through this uh, Mm -hmm. because, you know, your parents or whoever has convinced you and pressured you into thinking that that's right. But I think, I mean, if we're going back to our initial ratings, I think it kind of goes into what I was saying about it being on your own terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you feel like you fit in and you want to be in a place, then yes, perfect. Now it's time to summarize the episode. We spent 10 minutes writing either poems or Upgoer 5s to do this. An Upgoer 5 only lets you use the thousand most common words to explain a concept, which is trickier than you might think. And poems are always a fun outlet and way of expressing science. So enjoy. Okay. We ready? Yeah. Okay. Aditi, you want to start off? Okay. Well, I did another limerick. Yay. That's what I do. (laughs) Flies don't make pretty sculpture or build a skyscraping structure. But in choosing between a mate pink or green, they make us all think they have culture. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> There's the best. <laughs> okay, I wrote an upgoer five. Even small and simple animals can learn from each other. Older animals and even brothers and sisters can show each other how to go about life. These animals can remember what they learned for a long time. Humans learn from each other many ways. Sometimes what we learn makes us happy. Sometimes when we don't want to do what we learned, it makes us sad. It is hard to understand how human learning works because we would have to learn about learning while learning. (laughs) So so it is really cool to study other animals like flies because the way they learn is so close to how we do. Thanks to these studies, we can better understand humans. When we talked about our jobs, we found that we wanted to join people we liked. Did we learn who we like from others or did we learn on our own? These are the questions. Thanks, <laughs> friends, for the good talk. <laughs> I like these are the questions. <laughs> I did that for five as well. Uh, even animals with little brains care about what most of their friends are doing. When they change to be more like their friends, those changes can go on and on and on until everyone does it, but no one really knows why. <laughs> we know that people do this, and we think it's just us, but biology is funny that way. Sometimes it shows us just how much all the little friends we share this space with are just like us. 
Very nice. I like it. All right, I have a kind of freeform poem. Monkeys move stones, birds move doors, flies choose red, flies choose green. Peering watchers mirror action, old teach young, remember the lessons, generalize, apply, and through time appears a culture. I like it. Oh, I feel like nice. that required an interpretive dance to go with <laughs> <laughs> Next time. <laughs> So thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you to Celtic Letters, who's hosting us. And um, this is Julian, your principal host for the day. Aditi. Lev. John. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Yeah, have a nice week. Bye-bye. Hi, it's Julian again, and thanks for listening. If you want to reach out to us, please email us at biospherepodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet Lev at LMT underscore spoon. Please subscribe and review the podcast if you enjoyed it and share with your friends so that you can get the word out. If you're excited by this episode and want to write your own summary, you can find a link to the Upgoer 5 editor in the show notes. We'd also love to hear a poem from you. A huge thanks to Caltech Letters for hosting us. You can find other great science content at their website, caltechletters.org. See you next time!